Thank you for joining us and listening to this message from the Ministry of Grace Providence Church in Cerritos, California. For more information, visit our website at www.graceprovidencechurch.org. Turn to Mark chapter 1. Okay, we're coming to just two verses this morning, verses 14 and 15. We finish the Mark's introduction, verses 1 to 13. Now we come to the beginning of Jesus' ministry. His first words as recorded by Mark. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So there's a lot here in these two verses, so I want to give an entire sermon to it. could actually spend more than that because we're going to be looking at the kingdom of God, which is a major subject of Jesus' ministry and the New Testament. So, let let me just say this. So, Jesus has been fully prepared for his public ministry. He grew up in obscurity in the town of Nazareth for 30 years. Nobody knew who he was. His mother and father, no doubt, had an idea. He was somebody special, obviously. But he was a normal person for all those years, carrying on a work of probably stone masonry. He was a builder, following in the steps of his father, Joseph. So that was all preparation. A person can be prepared for ministry in obscurity. They don't have to be in seminary for four years to be prepared for ministry. Just a person's upbringing, what they do, learning the disciplines of a trade, being faithful and consistent in that work for all those years that went into Jesus' preparation. But Mark tells us that he was baptized, the Spirit came upon him, so he's anointed now for his work. And you'll notice that he's a preacher. The Lord Jesus Christ was a preacher. He taught, but he, he preached. And there's a difference between the two, and we'll come to that in just a moment. So we have what's important here is a summary of his message, distilled here in a single text of Scripture. But I want to look at four things as we look at verses 14 and 15. First of all, I want you to note the time and the place of Jesus' ministry. Notice it says that this began after John was arrested. This is John the Baptist, not John the Apostle who wrote the Gospel of John. We've got to make these distinctions when we read the Word of God so we don't get confused. This is John who was preaching in the wilderness, the baptism of repentance that we considered a few weeks ago. Now, what Mark doesn't tell us is why John was arrested. 
He was thrown in prison is what the word means here. He was handed over. He was taken into custody, and that led to his imprisonment and eventually to his beheading. That happened to him because he rebuked Herod for marrying his brother's wife, and he preached against it. He said, it's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And when Herod got the opportunity, he had John imprisoned, and then his wife got vengeance and requested that John be beheaded. I won't go into the circumstances of that. So eventually, John the Baptist lost his head for his faithful preaching against Herod and his sins that were very public. So after John was arrested, the Lord Jesus Christ, remember John was preaching in the wilderness of Judea, out in the desert, in the south of Israel, in Judea, where Jerusalem is, the Dead Sea. Jesus was baptized down there. Now he comes back to Galilee, which is in the north. And I'll show a map, not today, but in a future sermon soon, so we can be reminded of where these places are, because they're still there today. Nothing has changed. The geography is still the same. So Galilee is around the Sea of Galilee in northern Israel. So when you think of the land of Israel, think of three parts. In the south is Judea. South of Judea is the Negev, or the desert wilderness, goes over to the Dead Sea. Judea is where Bethlehem is, where Jesus was born. Jerusalem is there. And then you move up and you got the land of Samaria that's in the middle. And there's a whole other group of people that live there that are half Jewish and half Gentile. They're known as the Samaritans. The Jews had no business dealings with the Samaritans. There were big racial problems between the two. But north of Samaria is Galilee, where the Sea of Galilee is. So just think of Jerusalem like that. It's only 30 miles wide and about 100 miles from north to south. So Jesus returns to Galilee. This is his hometown. This is where he was brought up, was in Galilee. And most of his ministry was in that region. Galilee was a mixed population. There were some cities that were Gentile cities in that area. I'm thinking of one in particular that is still there to this day, Tiberias, which is on the western shore of Gal the Sea of Galilee, population about 50,000 today. That city was built by Herod Antipas, who was alive during the time of Jesus. Jesus stood before Herod in one of his trials. He was the son, one of the sons of Herod the Great. That Herod built Tiberias, named it after the current Caesar of Rome, Tiberius Caesar, Augustus. Still there today. Jesus did not go into Tiberias. No record of him visiting that Gentile city. In fact, he didn't visit any of the Gentile cities that were in the region of Galilee. He only went to the Jewish villages 
and towns. But yet, there were people that heard of his influence in Galilee that were Gentiles and sought him out, traveling even as far as Jerusalem to find him. Remember, John chapter 12 tells us that Greeks came to Jerusalem. They were looking for Jesus, and they found Philip, one of his disciples, and said, Sir, we want to see Jesus. Can you introduce us to him? So the Gentiles sought the Lord Jesus Christ out. They heard of his reputation up in Galilee. We have the woman who came from Tyre and Sidon that was even further north of Galilee on the coast. And she came seeking him, seeking the deliverance of her demon-possessed daughter. You remember, Mark tells us about that story. We'll come to it in chapter 7. So <clears throat> this was an interesting place, Galilee, because of this mix of Gentiles and Jews. The Galileans spoke a dialect of Aramaic. Apparently, it, the people in Judea made fun of the Galilean dialect. That's how they knew Peter was from there when they heard him speak. Uh, he, he speaks like a Galilean, they said. And the, the people of Judea, they made jokes about that dialect of Aramaic spoken there. The Judeans also despised the Galileans because of their lack of Jewish sophistication. That they were lax in observing uh, some of the Jewish rituals and so on. So I'm just I'm bringing out some of these things about the area that Jesus chose to concentrate his ministry in. So he comes back to Galilee. Now, what was he doing? This is my second point. Notice the main subject of Jesus' preaching. He was proclaiming, that's the word for preaching in the New Testament. What is preaching? It is uh, publicly, uh, openly declaring something. It was the work of a herald. They stood in a public place and they'd make announcements. They would preach. It's not the same as teaching. Preaching is a form of teaching, but it's a different style of teaching. It's more on the order of public declaration. That's the idea of the word. Somebody that preaches needs to be serious. They, need, they speak with authority and so on. Now, here's the summary of Jesus' proclamation. It was the gospel of God. Now, we already went over what the gospel is. If you remember, good news. Here we're told who the good news comes from. It's the good news of God. He's the source of it. So this is a message of good news from heaven, from God. And then we're going to be told the content of it. So as I was thinking about this again, about good news, I was reminded of the proverb that you've all heard. Proverbs 25, 25. Like cold water to a thirsty soul. Don't think of that. Cold water to a thirsty soul. So is good news from a far country. 
Well, the gospel is a far country, probably the farthest place to us here on earth. The message of God, the God of heaven, sent to us. When we understand who we are, that we do have thirsty souls, whether or not we realize it, to hear the good news from heaven, the good news of God, it should be like that to us. It should bring us that much joy and satisfaction. So Lord Jesus Christ now has begun his ministry in Galilee, around the Sea of Galilee, several villages there that he went to. This is where he got his disciples. He called his disciples from those villages to follow him. We'll come that next next time. Now let's come to the content of the gospel that Jesus preached. One of the things I hope to bring out in this message, what might seem to be a conflict or you're wondering how it fits together. We have Paul later in the New Testament telling us what the gospel is. And he says in 1 Corinthians 15, this is the gospel that I declare to you, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried and he rose again according to the scriptures. That's 1 Corinthians 15 verses 3 and 4. The Apostle Paul has compacted the, the, the good news that he preached right there in the death and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the good news. Now, as Jesus preaches the good news, he's got another take on it. And he's preaching it in terms of what? The time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Well, are these two different messages of good news? Or do they somehow coalesce and they really constitute, when you look at the whole thing, this gives us a, a beautiful summation of what the gospel is. So what, one of the things I hope to do is to try to give us a big picture how those two fit together. And they do fit together. They fit together beautifully. And this will assist in your understanding of the kingdom of God and what the kingdom of God has to do with the death and the resurrection of Christ. And both of them together are the good news of God. So let's look at this. We're in I'm in my third point, the content of the gospel that Jesus proclaimed. And then we'll look at the response, repent and believe. So let's look at the content for a moment. Notice Jesus says the time is fulfilled. Amen. The time is fulfilled. Now the word here for time is not chronos. There's two words in the New Testament for time. One of them is chronos, and that's the idea of Time as the succession of moments, what we normally think of time. Well, the time right now is 1140. That's chronos. This is a different word. This, this, zero, this word that's used here, that time is fulfilled, is talking about a particular point of time in history. 
a point of time that's very important, actually. It's referring to a definitive, critical moment in history that has now arrived. It was anticipated in the past, it was looked forward to in the past, and Jesus is now announcing this moment has come that you've been anticipating and waiting for for centuries. Now he's speaking to his people, Israel. And we'll see why that's so significant that he, he frames it like this. This is the set or the appointed time for the fulfillment of God's redemptive purposes announced in the Old Testament, predicted in the Old Testament. Remember, you, we have all these pages in the Old Testament. Most of the Bible is the Old Testament, two-thirds of it. And then it ends 400 years before Jesus. What was God saying in all that time? He was, pre, he was telling his people, I'm going to send the Messiah. I'm going to send the Anointed One. I'm going to send a Redeemer, my servant who's going to come into the world and take care of the sin problem. But they also were told something else. There's another side to it. It had to do with this kingdom aspect. Now, the kingdom of God is mentioned in by Mark 14 times. Now, Mark calls it the kingdom of God. When we read Matthew, Matthew calls it the kingdom of heaven. It was a little more acceptable to put it like that with a Jewish audience rather than using the name of God. Remember, the Jewish people, they wouldn't even write or pronounce the name of God. If they, when it was written down, the priests or the scribes, they had to change their clothes. They had to purify themselves. The name of God was so holy, so sacred. By the way, the name of God is YHWH in Hebrew. Y-H-W-H, four consonants and no vowels. It's not Jehovah. I know we had Jehovah in the first hymn. That tell, when, you, when we sing a song that has Jehovah in it for God's name, you know it's uh, 18th or 19th century. Jehovah comes from Jerome's translation of the Bible in Latin. And he translated the name of God, Y-H-W-H, as Jehovah. We're not Jehovah's Witnesses here because the name of Jehovah was in that song. Rather, the biblical scholars in recent years have said probably the correct pronunciation of Y-H-W-H is Yahweh. So that's my preference. When I talk about Yahweh, I'm, talk, I'm using the very name of God to speak of the God of the Bible. So the New Testament talks about the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, and it also uses the expression the kingdom of Christ. Those are not three different kingdoms. Those are all the same kingdom. Okay, that's the first thing. 
Now, the, the meaning of the kingdom of God, when that expression is used, it means the reign or the rule of God. This is, this is very important that we understand the definition. It's not talking about the territory. It's not talking about the extent of what God rules over. The, it, the focus is on the king himself, his kingship. It's God's rule, God's reign that is being emphasized. So let's just take it a step at a time. That's the first thing. Now, you might say, well, I thought God always reigned. What, what's new about this? Isn't God the absolute sovereign of the universe? Yes. This is the kingdom of providence that has always been true and always will be true, that God rules his creation exerting his power and his will over nations and nature, over individuals. This is God's absolute sovereign rule over what he has created. That has always been true, is true today, and always will be true, that God's kingdom reigns over all. Okay, that's the first thing. What Jesus is announcing here is not that kingdom. He's announcing the kingdom that was told in the Old Testament was going to come. Some of the things were said to King David. David, a descent, this is in 2 Samuel 7, David was promised that one of his descendants would sit upon the throne of a kingdom that would last forever and would reign. One of his descendants. Remember we went through the book of Daniel and we went through Daniel's visions. Remember chapter 7 of Daniel? How is it depicted there? Daniel has a vision of God on his throne, the ancient of days, he says. And in this heavenly vision he sees one like the Son of Man coming before the ancient of days to receive a kingdom. And a kingdom that was going to rule over all peoples. An eternal kingdom. Now the text I want to turn you to, which I don't often turn you to a text to read, but this one I, I want to, is found in Isaiah's prophecy. Isaiah 52. I'll stress a couple of things as I read this to you. Verse 7. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news. Paul quotes it, it's this in Romans 10 when he talks about the preacher and being called to preach. And he quotes Isaiah 52, 7. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who brings the gospel. Who publishes peace. Who brings good news of happiness. Who publishes, notice, salvation. Who says to Zion, check this out. Your God reigns. 
Notice the connection between the reign of God, the good news, the one who brings the good news, the good news of salvation, the good news that there is peace. Verse 8. The voice of your watchmen, they lift up their voice. Together they sing for joy, for eye to eye they see the return of the Lord to Zion. And the Lord literally comes to Zion, doesn't he? Not in a spiritual sense, literally he comes to Zion. Break forth together into singing. You waste places of Jerusalem, for the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. Verse 10, the Lord has bared his holy arm before the eyes of all the nations. It's an amazing, God does not have literal arms. God is a spirit. He doesn't have a body of flesh and bones. This is, this is a, uh, one of the analogies used in the Bible to speak, attributing bodily parts to God. But God having a strong arm speaks of his omnipotence, his power. And that he had to bear his arm in salvation. There was an exertion of divine power in accomplishing man's redemption. Whereas when it talks about his creation of the universe, it says it's the work of his fingers. It's interesting. Psalm 8. When I consider the moon and the stars which thou hast ordained, the work of your hands, the work of your fingers, what is man that you're mindful of him? But when it comes to salvation, it speaks of God bearing his arm. The Lord has bared his holy arm before all the eyes of the nations and all the ends of the earth shall see what? the salvation of our God. So, when we put this together, what the Lord Jesus Christ is preaching is that now this kingdom that primarily has to do with God's saving work, His saving action in human history, that He is going to invade our world. He's going to come into our world, into human history, in the form of one of us. He's going to become a man, a real man. He, he had a body of flesh and bones, and he had a soul. But he is also the eternal Son of God. And somehow these two natures miraculously came together in the person of the Lord Jesus. And he comes, so this is the kingdom of God. He, it comes in his person. For the purpose of working out redemption's plan, accomplishing salvation that brings happiness, that brings peace, peace with God, and the peace of God. Both peace with God, which is the foundation. We need to have peace with God because until we become followers of Christ and are saved by him, we don't have that peace yet with him. But once we are at peace with God and we're reconciled to him and he's our friend and our father, then we experience his peace in our heart and our minds and our souls. 
So for centuries, the, the people of God, Israel, being prepared for his coming, were, t- were told these things. They were given these promises. And so they're anticipating it. They're waiting for it. When is it going to come? We haven't heard from, we haven't had a word from God for four centuries since Malachi. Now the Lord Jesus comes on the scene and he begins preaching the kingdom of God. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. So this kingdom, let me just go a little bit further with it. Its dominant feature is, I'm going to say it's grace. This is the the dominant character or feature of this kingdom. It's one of grace. It's one of love. It's one of unmerited favor. This is what this is the atmosphere of this kingdom, because it's all grounded in God's promises, His gracious promises, His promise to save people, not because of what they do, but what He is going to do for them, unconditionally, freely, out of the abundant, infinite love of His heart. It's, an imp- it's important that it, it is founded on God's love and his work of salvation because this has everything to do with being a part of this kingdom. And what happens when that kingdom comes to us personally? We are delivered from the kingdom of darkness, the kingdom that we're born into, into the kingdom of this world. And we are taken out of the kingdom of darkness and we are translated into the kingdom of God's Son. This is Paul's language in Colossians 1. Translated into the kingdom of Christ, who becomes our new sovereign, our new ruler, the one to whom we submit our lives, who we freely and voluntarily and want to obey, And please him. In the Lord Jesus, he has replaced the the old dark power structure of the former kingdom that we were in. He has replaced that with his own glorious grace that becomes really the, the thing that moves and motivates us in wanting to follow him, please him, obey him, and so on. So with that is sort of the background. Now, let me just bring this up. When you look at what Jesus was doing in his earthly ministry, how he was defeating Satan in the wilderness, and he was defeating Satan by exorcising demons out of people's lives, casting them out, by overcoming disease, and death, this all fits into the big picture of what the kingdom of God is all about. Because what is happening is that kingdom of darkness that once kept the majority of mankind under its power, it is being demolished bit by bit. It's being pulled down by him And the kingdom of God is being established. It is growing and advancing in the world. 
So the Lord Jesus, he is, it's, his earthly ministry is a, a preview of the future when there's going to be a complete demolition of Satan's kingdom and it will be no more and his kingdom predominates. It is the only kingdom. And he's delivered this world from the effects of the fall. And in that sense, he will really be the savior of the world, the cosmos, the world. Now, how does the church community fit into that? Well, the, the church community is the, is the visible expression of the kingdom. So when you see a group of people who come together from various backgrounds and walks of life, and we're all different, but there's some, a common denom- denominator that unites us We have a common Lord, common Savior, who we want to please, who we want to worship, whom we want to exalt. This is an expression of this kingdom of grace, this kingdom that he announced, that he brought into the world, and it began as a mustard seed, he says, very small in its beginnings. Just think, after Jesus' three years of ministry, there were only 120 people that followed him that constituted the church in Jerusalem in Acts chapter 1. That's not many. When thousands and thousands of people heard him, witnessed his miracles, followed him for a while, when it was all said and done, he had 120 believers. Not much. A little grain of mustard seed. But then what happens in the book of Acts? Acts chapter 2, 3,000 people are added to that group under Peter's one sermon. The next chapter, 5,000, and so on. And it kept growing. And the gospel, which began in Jerusalem, then begins to expand. The apostle Paul is called, and he takes it to the far reaches of the Roman Empire. And Christianity is established in the world. So this is the establishment of his kingdom. Jesus announced it. The one who sits on the throne who's going to rule in grace, in saving action, bringing peace and happiness into people's lives. That time has come. The time of fulfillment has come. It is at hand. You know, that that means it's here. (laughs) It has arrived. It's, It's not... It's not potentially here and uh, based on people's reception of it, whether they, they accept it or not, is going to determine whether it continues. No, no. It came. Amen. And it was established. Amen. And it grows. And Jesus said, when you pray, pray that the kingdom of God comes and that his will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's an expression of it there. But let me just add this. Theologians like to say about the kingdom of God that it is already, but not yet. They love that expression, so I'll use it too. The kingdom of God is already. Jesus said it is here, it has arrived, it's established, and this is the good news. But there's a future aspect to it that is not yet. 
And this is the future kingdom of glory. So we're in the kingdom of grace when you become a believer and you're saved by grace and you're ruled by the king of grace, the Lord Jesus Christ. There is a day coming when he's coming in glory, the king of glory. And Matthew 25 tells us when he sits upon that kingdom of glory, he will separate the nations as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. To the sheep he will say, enter into the kingdom prepared for you from before the foundation of the world. That's the future aspect. So we have a bright and glorious future with the Lord Jesus Christ. Without him, there's not much hope of anything. Now, look at the response that he calls men to. So what what are we supposed to do with this? Okay, he announces the kingdom. What now? Well, he, he gives two commands. See, Mark is very, he's, he gives us the reader's digest, condensation of, of things. It's, it's distilled to its like simplest form in his message. If you want more information, then read Matthew. Matthew will elaborate on all of this. But Mark has told us, here's the essence of it. This is the essence of the response. Notice it's two commands. These are commands in the original. Repent and believe in the gospel. Now, the fact that it's a command gives a seriousness to it. This this isn't something that we can just blow off and think, well, it's optional. I'll, you know, I'll think about it. Well, there's a sense in which we have the choice of complying with it or not. If we don't comply, I want you to know this. This is a command of Christ, and a person who does not obey his command, they incur great guilt. But it's guilt that can be forgiven. We were all unbelievers at one time. I remember very distinctly when I didn't like hearing, as a kid even, I didn't like it when I heard people talk about Jesus. Well, that's all sin that he forgives when we come to him. Thank you, Lord. He forgives our unbelief, our lack of repentance. Now, what's wonderful here is Jesus puts the two great things together that are necessary Conditions. These are, these are conditions of salvation. What do, I, what do I have to do? Now, there's no merit in this. Don't think it, repentance has some merit, that, this, that you've done something that God is going to reward you for. There's no merit in these. these. This is the very least expected thing that man should do in response to the good news. There's no merit in repentance. Repentance is the acknowledgement, again, of my sin before God's confessing it, feeling bad about it, and turning from it. The original word, like it brought out a couple of weeks ago, means to change your mind. You have to have a change of mind. So it all begins in our thought life. I I need to change in my thinking about sin, about who God is, and so on. So repentance is very important. There's no salvation apart from repentance. 
And then he puts together believing. These are, some theologians say, in order to make the point, these are Siamese twins. These are connected at the hip. They're inseparable. They go together. Where one is found, the other is implied and vice versa. So Paul, Paul, Peter, in, on the day of Pentecost, he doesn't have to say, believe and repent and be baptized. He simply says, repent and then let every one of you be baptized to show your repentance, is how it's worded in the original. Repent and let every one of you be baptized for the forgiveness of sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, Acts 2.38. But then another time, Paul will simply say to the Philippian jailer who comes in, who's thinking he's going to drop into hell at any moment, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And Paul says, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. So Paul just distills it like that. It is both faith and repentance, faith and belief, Repentance is to turn from sin, turn to God, and believe then is, again, trust. This is the idea of trust, is the idea of believing in the New Testament, to trust. It's not simply agreement or assenting to facts. That, that it kind of begins there. It begins with saying, yeah, I, I believe that. I agree with that. I believe Jesus was a real person in history. I, I believe he rose from the dead. That's like the first baby step of faith. But what it's talking about, about believing in Jesus, it means to trust him. That, that's, the, that's where it wants to take us, so that we are putting all of our hopes in him and resting in him for salvation. Beware of a false repentance. Let me just mention this. You know, some people are sorry after they get caught. And they weep and carry on. Oh, I'm so sorry I did that. And it's, not, it's not true repentance. Repentance that comes out of being caught for something is not repentance. That's repenting uh, for the wrong reason. Repentance needs to be based on the fact that we have sinned against God. And that is the most horrific thing about it. We have offended an infinite being. And we need to see it in that light. Faith also, there can be a false faith. Jesus described it in one of his parables when he talked about they believe for a while and then they fall away. This is in the parable of the sower. A person that looked very promising, they received the word of God with joy and they were all excited about it. And Jesus said they believe for a while. And then when the pressures of life come and persecution, they fell away. So that is not a true faith. So we've got to beware of a false repentance and a false belief. True belief continues with Jesus Christ. We follow him to the end. And that, that's proof, that's demonstrative proof that we are true believers, that our faith does not give up. It doesn't fall by the wayside. Okay. So, the death and resurrection of Christ, 
and the kingdom of God, as I tried to describe it for you, which I felt it's inadequate, but I did my best to try to help us in our understanding of that. These two come together because the death and the resurrection of Christ is the basis upon which this kingdom rests. It's a kingdom of grace. It's a kingdom of saved people. <laughs> That's who the kingdom includes. These are, these are the subjects of the king. They're, they're saved people. Well, how did they get saved? So the saving action of God that Isaiah spoke of. This is, this is the basis for this kingdom. As I was thinking it over this morning, the Lord brought to mind, I believe he brought it to my mind, Paul's language in Romans 5. When Paul compares the work of Adam and the work of Jesus, he contrasts them. Adam brought death by his one act of disobedience. Christ brought righteousness by his act of obedience, and so on. Paul uses the, the verb reign there. He talks about sin reigning in death. Why, why does he use reign? Thought, oh, this, this connects it. This also brings it back to the idea of the kingdom. This is kingdom language. This is the language of a kingdom. The previous kingdom and the one that we were under was the, where sin reigned in death. But Paul, on the other hand, he speaks of grace reigning. Grace reigning in righteousness unto eternal life. There's the great contrast. In the Bible, it's always just two things. There's never a third one. It's people are either righteous or wicked. It's either the kingdom of darkness or the kingdom of God's Son. It's either Adam or Christ. Sin reigning in death versus grace reigning in righteousness. This is the kingdom that Jesus announced. And his... His work, he came to accomplish the work so that this kingdom could go into effect. So there could possibly be people in a kingdom of this nature. So that they could be snatched out of the other kingdom. So there'd even be hope that we could be taken out of that kingdom and brought into his kingdom. Which is a kingdom of life, light, and love. And I want to just leave it there. For us. There's a lot there for you to meditate. I hope that you will take these some of these ideas, think on them, think it through. If you see something more and you want to share it with me, I would love to hear it because I'm. This is a subject that I've thought about many times through the years, and there's a lot of pieces to it. A lot of things that we try to connect, bring together, so we can understand it. But there, I hope you can see. The two Gospels, the one explained by Paul and this one by Jesus, are actually the same message. Just two sides of the same coin, so to speak. 
Thank you for joining us and listening to this message from the Ministry of Grace Providence Church in Cerritos, California. For more information, visit our website at www.graceprovidencechurch.org.